morning in that. So hey, welcome to Element if you are new. Uh, yeah, we like cookies. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Uh, this is the last week of the series we're doing. Somebody asked last week if we do a booklet like this for every series, and I'm like, ha, 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 no, because this was a lot of work. And we, apparently we don't like that, but I don't know. Anyways, but there's a, you can grab one of these. We've handed out like 600 of these so far through this series. So I don't know if you guys keep losing them and taking more or actually people take them, but whatever. You can grab one of these. Uh, inside of that, you'll get a short little daily devotions, very short, get you in the habit of doing daily devotions. Uh, there's also family questions, gospel community questions. There's a gospel statement. There's all kinds of stuff in there to help us understand each week what we're going through in this series. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on more and then events in version. We should come up by a GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, which are essentially in there right now. Just uh, the announcements, the gospel statement, the verses we go through, and that's really about it. So we'd recommend you grab a booklet. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and it says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for being a gracious and a good God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And I ask that as we understand the implications of the gospel, we begin to live out the goodness of who you are in the lives around us. That we would be people who consistently point to who you are and your goodness and your grace over us. And that you'd be glorified in all that we do because you are good. Amen. Have a seat. You're welcome. All right, so uh, if this is your first week ever at Element, you're great. You got the last week of our series on Didn't See That Coming. Uh, Didn't See That Coming is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the gospel, that word, is not some funky word that Christians made up, so we act all weird and loony. The gospel literally means the good news. It's good news about something that affects your life. So if I said to you, science has now proven that ice cream is good for you, Exactly. Yeah, like, that is good news and it affects my life. It'd be awesome. It's not true, but it would be, it would be good news. And so when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the good news of what God has done throughout eternity past, throughout the scriptures to rescue and redeem us that comes to the culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. And we all must be a people who respond to it. So when we talk about this gospel, it is that God has taken what is, God has taken away what has separated us from Him and us from one another, namely our rebellion and sin, thinking we know how to do life better than God. He has taken it upon on himself so we can be restored. The church reformers, they would call this the great exchange. It is my sin for his righteousness, my death for his life, my despair for his hope. We get to have restored relationship with God, not based upon our efforts, but upon Jesus' effort on our behalf. And when we were kind of putting together this entire series, I had a way of how it was going to end, and I even called it an eternity. And then when I started to put it together and write it, it turned out completely different because God had different plans. Didn't see that coming, but but whatever, that's how it normally works. And so I was reading this article from uh, Tim Keller, and it made it into my message th- two weeks ago, last week, and this week. I got a lot of mileage out of it. I love it when I run across things like that because I'm lazy. Uh, but it's, it's great, and it spoke so much of where we are in a society today and what the gospel is and what the gospel brings and I think of what a gospel future can actually be. So what I want you to do is open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. 
and then put a mark there and flip over to 1 Corinthians 8, because we're going to talk about these two things. We're going to talk about culture and eternity, but hopefully very practically. I almost had you guys stand for the reading of God's word and did both of these sections, but I didn't. I'm letting you sit down. Good news for you. I'm gospel. Okay, uh, this is Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And this is how, what Paul says there. He says, as, the one, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who despises the one who abst- let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And now, First Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So what I want to do is ending an eternity and didn't see that coming. We're bringing these verses together and you're probably thinking, how are you going to make that happen? I am a professional, okay? (laughs) We're going to make this work. We got to understand that our present behavior is a lot determined by what, how we see our future and what it's going to be. And the Christian hope, it is completely unique because we have a certainty of who God is and what he has done and our relationship with him. In Christianity, our standing with God is not based upon what we do. It's based upon what Jesus has done. Therefore, our eternity, it is secure. So we can trust God for the things that he says. We can't lose it. And secondly, in this, we understand also that our future, it's not this ethereal heaven where we're all wearing diapers and strumming harps and jumping to different cloud to cloud. It's a material future. We will hug. We will love one another. There's going to be food and all kinds of great things because it's a material future that God brings together. We have this certainty because of what Jesus has done to bring it to us, and that's meant to shape all areas of our lives. And so these verses that I had us all start with in this is how does this then affect our current view of the world that is around us? How do different people of cultural makeups and cultural races live together in harmony? How does that then go on into eternity? Because this has been dominating our concerns in our country for the past few decades, all the way from the civil rights movement to the Trump election and all the things that surround it. And so I think Paul shows how this Christian hope gives us certainty for how to live our lives in the midst of this mess. Keller in his article actually says that uh, it shows us the problem, a false solution, a real solution, and then the strength to know how to actually live this out. So what is the problem? Well, the problem's us. It's always us. But Romans 14 and 15 are about this dispute that's going on in the church in Rome. I mean, imagine Christians actually having an issue with each other. What? That never happens, right? Okay, so Paul says, except him whose faith is weak. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, Paul is not saying, as much as I like to make fun of it at times, that, that vegetarians have bad theology. That's not what he's saying. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's this long list of foods that Israelites could eat and then ones they couldn't. These were clean and unclean foods. The purpose of unclean foods was twofold. Number one, uh, it was to help Israel keep its national identity when sometimes it was overrun in the midst of a more dominant, populous, and powerful nation. It kept them to remember who they are. And secondly, is a reminder that Israel or people in, in general can't just go, go before the presence of a good and a holy God. We need some type of cleansing because we are unclean. Clean. 
And in Romans 14, 14, Paul says that in Jesus, no food's unclean. And he shows us that it's Jesus is the one who makes us presentable before the Father. He takes away our uncleanness, so we are clean, hence the gospel, the good news. There is no amount of performance or regulations or prescriptions that can do that. Therefore, all the clean and unclean laws have been fulfilled in Christ. That's why we don't necessarily have to follow all those things anymore. But there is a group of people in the church in Rome who, though they believe the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, they couldn't shake these centuries of tradition, and they felt it was still wrong for Christians to eat certain foods. And if, you know, if you're going to follow the Jewish dietary laws in a pagan setting like Rome or Corinth, it's very difficult because there's almost no kosher meat available whatsoever. So most of them stopped eating meat altogether. I know, tragedy, right? No meat, no tri-tip, no bacon, what? And so what Paul calls them is he calls them weak in faith because though they believe the gospel, though they believe they were accepted through what Jesus had done, they had not been able to work out all the implications of that. And so here they have these unnecessary rules that help them to feel spiritually okay. They get to feel like I prove myself by being spiritual and right. And so what it shows is they haven't really applied the gospel to all areas of their life. And that's the reason Paul calls them weak in faith. They're weak in understanding the implications of the gospel of grace for all life. Are you following? Yes. Okay, good, good. Last service I said that, everybody's like, blink. I'm like, listen to the podcast, you'll get it. So he also says there's other people in the church in Rome who are strong. That is, they see there's really nothing wrong with eating any of the food. And on the surface, it looks like a garden variety theological debate until you look at 1 Corinthians 8 with that Romans passage because you bring these two things together. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking about a different dispute, still also though around food. In Corinth, most of the food you would buy in open-air markets was blessed by invocations to pagan gods or idols done by these pagan priests. So there's Christians in the church in Corinth who said, you can't eat meat offered to idols. And part of it was because they had this lingering superstition that somehow maybe these idols or gods had some kind of power. They were afraid. And so Paul calls them weak because they don't understand the implication of the gospel in every aspect of their life. They don't see the triumph of Christ over everything. They haven't worked out all, all of this. And so there are people at the church in Corinth who are strong, who said, those idols are nothing. They're not even real. Why would you not eat this meat? And when you put these two things side to side, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, something occurs. You have these two culturally, racially different groups, Jewish Christians who have been converted out of Judaism and Greco-Roman Christians who have been converted out of paganism. So in Corinth, who are the ones most likely to still feel like the idols had some power, who haven't thought through the implications of the gospel? Well, it would have been the Greeks. You know, the, the Jewish Christians in that case would have been the strong ones. And they, and they would have said, come on, you need to understand the gospel. Now, in Rome, which racial group is most likely to be the one who still holds to the Mosaic dietary laws? Well, that would have been the Jewish Christians. They're the weak ones. And the pagan Greek ex-pagans would have been the ones who said, oh, come on, they would have been the strong ones. And it shows us you have this racial and cultural differences that's there. And I think sometimes underneath of what we like to think as philosophical or theological or doctrinal disputes really comes down to some cultural distinctions. Like our racial and cultural differences, they have a big impact on how we do things, how we read the Bible, how we'll interact with one another, and how we apply the gospel to our lives. Every people group has had a different experience in the world. You have had a different experience than the person sitting right next to you because you were raised differently. We all have a different cultural experience, and you can't try to deny it. 
And honestly, I think the people who are most likely to deny what the Bible shows here, people who are most likely to not think that there's racial or cultural differences, typically are white people. Tim Keller says, Some years ago, a black Christian friend of mine once said, The thing that bugs me about white people is they don't seem to think they have a culture. And so he says, What are you talking about? Because <laughs> he's like, Okay. And so this guy says, white Christians are constantly doing things in a white way, but you don't think of it as a white way, you just think of it as the way. In other words, you don't think of your ways as white, you think of your ways as just right, but there are other ways to do things. And what the Bible is showing us here is cultural and racial differences, they can't be ignored, they've got to be dealt with. And so they're there, and what do you do with them? Because they can be a problem, but they can also be a solution to a problem we have. I love these two passages because it shows you the racial background of one group makes them very wise in one situation with the gospel, and in another situation, it makes them dumb. And those people who are dumb in this other situation, when put in another cultural perspective, they look extremely wise. One makes them strong, one makes them weak. You flip it around, one makes them weak, one makes them strong. I mean, it's kind of cool. And this means I think everybody is standing in a cultural position, no matter how hard we try not to. We are in a culture. Our position is limited, and it makes us see only part of the glory of the gospel. And what this means is we actually need each other. God designed us to be a people who actually need one another. All of us needing each other, that only together, only when we have all these people from different racial groups reading the scriptures and grabbing hold and taking hold of the gospel and talking about it and working through it, do we see all the glory of what the gospel is? I mean, maybe that could be our gospel statement for the week. I think the more racially and culturally homogenous the church is, the more likely it's going to have huge blind spots. And I worry about that for Element. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Four Loves, and he talks about four different types of love. I know, right? Okay. So in this, one of me talks about what's called friendship love. And he talks about these three guys, Jack, Charles, and Ronald. They're best friends. They get together a couple times a week, and they talk about all kinds of stuff. And at one point, Charles dies. And Jack then realizes there's a part of Ronald who's still alive that Charles brought out that he will never see again. And there's part of Ronald that Charles brought that Jack just can't seem to evoke anymore. And so it suddenly strikes Jack, who's C.S. Lewis, that he would only know Ronald, who's J.R.R. Tolkien, only in the course of having these people together in a group. Like, I can tell you, my wife, I bring certain things out in her. Sometimes it's frustration, but I bring certain things out in her. But when she's in a group with other friends, there are things that will come out because she will interact with her friends differently than me. There's all kinds of things that you interact in a group and you see so much more. I think one person can't really know another person unless it's in a community. And if that's true of Ronald, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, you know, how much more sometimes is that true of who Jesus is? This is one of the reasons Jesus puts us in a church with other people. I mean, a church is not just about gathering together on a Sunday morning. A church is this people that God has designed us to walk through life together with. I think we are only know him together fully in communities of varying personalities and varying backgrounds. The great irony today is that our cultural differences are a huge problem, and yet they're also a solution to a problem at the exact same time. And we cannot walk away from the enormous amount of work sometimes that it takes to work through certain things as we study the Bible together and worship together and live together and relate together and have fellowship together. This is one of the reasons why Element pushes gospel communities so hard. We do not even do a midweek program because if we have another thing in your life that we want you to do a gospel community and be in one and get in contact with other 
other Christians. I, the gospel is living out our lives with each other. Only together will we grasp the kingdom of God and the glory of God and who Jesus is. And I think that is just awesome that God designed us this way. I think it's why in eternity, the scriptures say it's every nation, tribe, and people. God loves that diversity. And so how do we deal with these cultural differences? Well, what Paul does is he gives us, I think, what you'd call like a false solution and then a real solution. I think the false solution, I know it sounds very negative, but we've got to understand it's how our world handles cultural and racial differences today. The, the bad solution is just to be broad-minded. You know, cause our culture says that's the answer. Like when the modern world you know, sees people say, you can't eat that, you can't drink that, you can't do that, people say, hey, that's narrow-minded, right? Is this on? I know it's new, but I'm just... Yeah, okay, we say that's narrow- narrow-minded. It, whatever, okay. In the verses we looked at, there are these narrow-minded people, and they're like, you can only have one point of view, this is how it works, that's it. Then you have the broad-minded people who our culture looks at and says, well, they just kind of think everything's really okay. You know, you don't have to eat the meat, but if you do eat the meat, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to, whatever. Oh, we're, we're both right. And so we look at these two positions, and we think, well, that one that says you can't, well, that's narrow-minded. And the one that says anybody can, well, that's broad-minded. And this is how the world today kind of relates to just about everything. Like in our media today, they, you know, they say this all the time. The only way you're going to have world peace is if everybody says that nobody has the truth. Nobody has the corner on the truth. Every position is right. Everybody's morality is right, whatever they say, something to that effect. What Paul does in almost all of his criticisms, his criticisms are against the strong. Virtually everything he says here and all of his urgings are against the strong. Why? Well, Romans 14 verse 3 says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why does Paul say that? Because they are both happening. The narrow-minded people are very easy to point out, but the broad-minded people, they are also narrow-minded. Because they're saying this is how it has to be done. Broad-minded people say all positions are right. That doesn't lead to a solution to a problem. It leads you to look down on people who are narrow-minded. If you have this view that, you know, the truth is relative and everybody says is just okay, that's a very particular point of view. It's actually a very European, very white, very culturally located situational position. If we say nobody has the truth and everyone who says they have the truth is narrow, that is actually a very narrow view. You're doing the very thing that you are denouncing. You're saying my relativistic approach to the truth is the right one. And it's very dangerous. And it's also almost worse than narrow-mindedness because a lot of narrow-minded people know that they're narrow-minded. And broad-minded people have no idea how narrow-minded they actually are. Like, how do you say it better? Uh, if you are intolerant against intolerant people, you're intolerant. Right? If you are judgmental against judgmental people, you are judgmental. Exactly. And the scriptures teach you that in times and places, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being intolerant of injustice and hate. There's nothing wrong. The scripture teaches we need to judge certain things as being good or evil. It's okay to judge certain things. And it's okay to have the truth of who Jesus is to rescue me, Jesus, and to speak about that in a real and true way. What we have to understand is when we think this broad-mindedness is a solution, it's no solution at all. It can make you more exclusive as you look down on narrow-minded people. Tim Keller actually calls it camouflage. You're camouflaging your narrow-mindedness by saying you're broad-minded. Like in California today, it's crazy. The people who would say they're most broad-minded are the ones who now want to ban certain books. Eek, that's just kind of weird to me. And so what's the real solution in this? Romans 14, verses 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Chapter 15, verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
And so Paul is calling us to a different approach. And it's not our modern worldview of tolerance. The world says, you know, I'm not going to say what you're doing is wrong. Your beliefs are wrong, but I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm not going to change anything about me. That's not necessarily tolerance. That is Western expressive individualism. What Paul does is he calls every Christian who understands the gospel to the exact opposite. He says the words, accept the weak, accept the weak. And I know you missed it. Okay. But two things in here. One, he called people weak. That's negative. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a negative evaluation of something. And so he's, he's like, you're wrong. You know, you're in error. And in our culture, oh, you can't use the word weak. Well, Paul just did, and there it is. But he also uses this word called accept. Accept. Now, the word accept is this Greek word called proslambano. And what it means is to draw in, to open up your circle, to have a relationship with, to welcome someone in. You adjust your life. You make changes in order to have a relationship with someone who is culturally, maybe in beliefs, very different than you. And it's the exact opposite of what our culture calls acceptance. Acceptance in our culture is whatever you want to do, that's okay. I'm not going to. No, it's like you can have differences and say certain things are wrong, but you still want a relationship. You still bring them in and long for relationship. You adjust your life in certain way to have deep relationships from people you are different from. In Romans 14 verse 20, he says, don't do something that makes your brother stumble. And sometimes people say, well, that means you can't do anything that offends or upsets somebody. Seriously, how can you call somebody weak, make a negative evaluation, say you're wrong without upsetting them? So they can't be what it means. What it means is, essentially, you deal very carefully with how you talk and how you interact with people around us. We do it through the lens of the gospel. And so we make some adjustments. And there are times that we will refrain from doing something we normally would do so as not to mislead or confuse someone we're trying to have a relationship with, who's maybe different than us. Doug Moo writes this. He says, do you realize in the Greek, this verse literally says, we who are strong should bear the weak. What can that mean? Paul is not urging the strong simply to bear with or to tolerate or to put up with the weak and all their scruples. Paul is calling us to sympathetically enter deeply into the attitudes of the weak, refraining from criticizing and judging them, and do what would re- and do what love would require towards them. Why would we do that? Because that's what the gospel did to us. The gospel sought us in the places that we were wrong and we were weak, and Jesus called us in. Paul is not saying adopt their wrong beliefs. He's saying, I want you to get in very close to those people, to make every effort to see their side of things, to understand why they say what they do, why they do what they do. See if there's any even advantages to their position. I want you to do everything you can other than agree with them when they're wrong, but I want you to be patient and loving and going for relationship. That is how the gospel goes forward. And the application of this is, I think, is pretty amazing. But what we tend to do as a people is we tend to hang out with people of the same race, the same background, the same culture. Why? It's easier. There are people in our culture who say that's racism. It's not typically racism. It's just simply easier because they understand it and they get it. And you don't have to think about when you crack a joke. If someone's going to get offended, you shouldn't have said this, this or that. You know, It goes for every culture. This is why in our gospel communities, we really have the goal to have them all different age groups all together. A lot of times people are like, I want to be in a gospel community, but can I have one with no kids? Or can I have one that only has little kids? Or can I have this? And Because we're, we're only looking for people who are just like us. And that's not how the gospel calls us to live. And when you interact with people who are different from you in different walks of life from you, it gets hard. It is not easy because everybody sees things just a little bit differently. But it helps to grow us to understand the gospel better when we enter the position and try and understand what people are actually saying. Jesus calls us to go out in relationship. And too often we don't want to go out. But I'll tell you, we're never going to fully understand the gospel without going out. 
We must go out. It means that people in different races and cultures have to start to learn how to hang out together and love one another, make space for each other in our lives. It means if you're a Trump voter, hang out with a Clinton voter and find out why. If you're a Clinton voter, hang out with a Trump voter and find out why and try and understand why they actually made that decision. Because I guarantee you, neither one of them want to see America burn and get destroyed. Talk about it. I think Black Lives Matters and police officers need to get together and talk about it and try and understand each other's positions and why things are going on. Star Trek and Star Wars. You guys got to get together. (laughs) IPA and Stout fans, get together. (laughs) Figure it out. I think in churches, this is so true. It's like, so I, I, I have this friend. He's, he's a charismatic, uh, speaks in tongues, thinks God's talking to him all the time. And I'm, I'm a very theological, reformed, conservative kind of guy. And the scripture teaches that we can't stay away from each other. We have to talk to one another. And so we'll sit down sometimes and I'll think he's weird and we'll, and I'll say, you're weird. And he's like, well, you're weird. And I'm like, yeah, but you're, you're like, God's like a junior high girl with a unlimited cell phone minutes. Cause he's talking to you like chatty Kathy all the time. Blah, 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 blah. And he's all, yeah, but you don't think God talks at all. And I go, he does in the scriptures. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, and so we, we have these crazy conversations about, about stuff, you know, and, and he, and he's like, you, you should come to my thing. And I'm like, what's your thing? He's like, we're going to have a revival. And I'm like, oh no, no, no. Cause I've been, to, uh, I don't know. And I'm like, no, no, you gotta go. And so, and we do, but we respectfully and lovingly talk to one another about these things. And, and because we can't stay away from each other. We have to do this. We, and, and sometimes it helps me to see things differently from some of the things that he says. And I mean, I, I hope I help. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, you know, we're iron sharpening iron. We're growing one another. Paul says in Romans 15, you do this with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I also think we do this with our neighbors. And we do this in our workplaces and all these places because the world around us says, you know, be tolerant on our terms and then we'll embrace you. But what the gospel says is you just have to be breathing and we will embrace you. That's the difference. And so where do you get the strength to do this? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. So Paul says the strength actually comes from the hope of the gospel, understanding what the gospel is. I think Romans 15 is one of the best statements about gospel eternity in the scriptures. Romans 15 verses 4 through 7. Paul says this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why do we do it? For the glory of God. Our hope is in Jesus, and in him there will be a future where we will be one, and the world will actually be one. Tim Keller talks about this book that a guy named David Chappell wrote called It's Stone of Hope, and it's a history of the civil rights movement. And he talks about how in the 30s and 40s and 50s, there are these white liberals, and they thought, you're not supposed to tackle segregation. They didn't go out and demonstrate or anything because they had hope in human goodness and science and education and human reason and all that. But then you had the black activists, especially like Martin Luther King Jr., and they realized that their hope is actually in the kingdom of God, in the gospel. Because the gospel is not just this, oh, humans will figure it out. It's that there's sin, and it's evil, and we are destroying one another. But God made all things new at the cross and the resurrection, and one day there will be true justice. And so the gospel is so much more realistic about who we are. And it speaks about how the kingdom of God is only going to come to divine intervention against sin. And so you have all these black activists and ministers because they understand human sin and because they understand the kingdom of God and that the only way human sin is ever going to let go of its power is through God's intervention. 
And so the book makes this right case about how they stepped in and they did something about segregation, largely because they were Christians, inspired by a Christian hope, a Christian understanding of the kingdom of God, and they went after it. And Martin Luther King Jr., he says, when they come at us with hate, we're going to come at them with love. When they come at us and they want to hurt us, we will embrace them. This is the difference. Paul says, when he talks about eternity and the gospel eternity, he says, it's like if you're a secular person, you just hope. Oh, if I work hard enough, somehow we'll bring in justice and figure it out. And religious people are like, if I'm good enough, God's going to accept me. But the gospel says, no, we are messed up people. And our God had to come and rescue us. And so our hope rests on Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and what he has done. That God loves us and he accepts us. And it has nothing to do with our performance. And that changes everything. I mean, you might be very moral. But you cannot look at your morality as the basis of your significance. Because if you do, you're going to look down at other people who are not as moral as you. You might think you're very open-minded. Like, I work for human rights. But you cannot base your significance on that. Or you will begin to look down at other people who aren't as open-minded as you. See, what we have to understand is that it's only by the grace of the gospel that our eyes are going to be opened. It is Jesus who brings us together. It is Jesus who shows us how we need one another. And it's important for us to understand that on the cross, Jesus makes a negative evaluation of all of us. Jesus says when he's dying, you're a sinner. You cannot take care of the sin problem that separates you from God on your own. You can't pay for your own failures. But the beauty of the gospel is at the same moment, he is also making space for us. See, sometimes people say things like, oh, I accepted Christ. Well, the beauty is actually Christ accepted you. He brought you in. He opened up. He's the one who brought us in. He's sacrificing so we could be in relationship with him. The gospel gives us a present hope and a future hope of this love of God. And we get to turn around and do it to everyone else around us, no matter the race, no matter the culture. Here's your gospel statement for the week. This is the last one, so I am going to make you repeat it. Okay? Here it is. The gospel is the good news of the present and future love of God that teaches us to live eternity now by worshiping Jesus in all ways, including loving others by living in redemptive relationship with them, no matter the race or culture. You can actually say it slower than I just did. Don't worry. Okay. But here you go. Ready? Three, two, one. The gospel. what the gospel brings the gospel brings us to be a people who live out that understanding with everyone around us in the book spirit of the disciplines dallas willard writes this he says often we are told that the role of god upon the earth will be fulfilled in a great act of violence in which multitudes of people are slain by god followed by a totalitarian government of literally infinite proportions headquartered in jerusalem i believe to the contrary that the coming rule of god is to be governed by grace and truth mediated through personalities maturing christ god reigning and ruling And that his people are those who love and embrace others, live in his name as we were always meant to be, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where we started, didn't see that coming. Guys, our biggest problem and our biggest solution is the same. And it's only together, focusing on Jesus, that we'll see everything he has for us. I think only by focusing on him will we learn to love, will we talk to one another, will we welcome one another, will we bring one another in? Only through understanding who he is and the grace and the goodness of the gospel. And we are told that this goes on into eternity. I mean, 
every tribe, every nation. When it says he makes us one, it doesn't mean we all look the same. It means that he makes us one because we are centered upon him. We become one people who worship him with one voice. And that's supposed to be true starting today. And so we can step into each other's lives and speak of the hope and the truth and the grace of the gospel and love one another how God calls us to because he is simply good. This is one of the reasons at Element we do communion every single week. It's a reminder of what he has done to rescue us. It's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. We don't pass it around the room. You actually have to get up and go take communion because it's going to be a response to what he has done. And we do this remembering that he is the one who has accepted us and brought us in and rescued us and redeemed us and saved us. So then we get to be a people who go out and live that as well. Understanding our great redemption so it is then lived out by what we do because our God is good. The band's going to come up. As they do, I might just take communion. to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. Uh, maybe you have a situation in your life where you have somebody where you just do not want to have a relationship with them in any way. And sometimes if someone, if someone hurts you, you, know, you, you can forgive them. It doesn't mean you have to have a relationship in that way. But if there's somebody in your life that you're just different from them because cultural, racial differences of some sort, you don't get to stay away from them. We get to go in and try and have relationship. We get to go in and try and live out what the gospel means by how we love one another. And if you have someone who maybe just they just drive you nuts, maybe try and understand their position a little bit. Maybe begin to try and understand how they see things. Because even if you still disagree, you can still then enter in better to relationship because at least you're trying to understand where they're coming from. And this goes to both sides. We've got to understand this as we walk together and live out the gospel that our God calls us to good things and that living out into an eternity with the gospel starts today. And so we live loving one another in relationship because of what God calls us to. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's just like communion, just like prayer. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, there's food outside. We invite you to grab something to eat. As you grab something to eat, uh, maybe talk to one another, build some relationships. Maybe this week ask some questions out of the booklets. You know, and ask some questions like, you know, where are some places in your life where the gospel needs to speak you know, more, more clearly into your life so it's lived out in others' lives around you. You know, maybe talk about those things where you don't want to have a relationship with somebody else because you just don't agree with certain things of who they are, and yet the gospel calls you to step into that and to start to speak truth and hope and grace there. And maybe you can encourage one another to begin to live out the gospel in every aspect of your life because God calls us to. It's why we need one another to remind us of the goodness and the hope of the gospel. Guys, God is good. God is good. And I think the more that we understand the good news of his goodness, it will change how we live. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your grace and your hope. That we'd be a people who daily begin to live out what we will live on into eternity. One tribe, one nation, one people, a people who speak with one voice that is centered upon who you are. And I ask that you would teach us how to trust you as we go out. That we'd be able to speak into the situations around us.
of your hope. That we can, we would be narrow-minded in how we love you. That we'd be narrow-minded in how we see the good news of what you have done and your rescue. And that we'd be a people who learn how to truly accept those around us. Not in the way our culture says to, but in the way you call us to. Teach us to live out the good news of the gospel. Thank you for loving and saving us. And I thank you that throughout the course of eternity, we will just come to know who you are better and better and better. And all that we know now is going to pale in comparison to what we know then. But even today, we can still live out that great hope of who you are. Have us live with the knowledge and the wisdom of your goodness. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.